Welcome to the Northbound Wealth Podcast. All opinions expressed by me, my co-hosts, or my guests are solely our own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Northbound Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational and educational purposes only and is not intended as personalized recommendations or fiduciary advice. It is not intended to provide and should not be relied upon for any investment, accounting, legal, and tax advice or as a solicitation to offer or buy any securities. Clients of Northbound Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Hello, everybody. Today is May 16, 2023, and this is your host, Brent Foster of the Northbound Wealth Podcast, Weekly Market Insights. Let's dive in. We've got a busy week to discuss. Attention turns to the debt ceiling. Stocks were mixed last week as good inflation news was offset by mounting debt ceiling concerns and rekindled regional banking fears. The Dow Jones Industrial Average lost 1.11%, while the S&P 500 slipped 0.29%. The NASDAQ Composite Index rose 0.40% for the week, and the MSCI EF Index, which tracks developed overseas stock markets, fell 0.67%. So what does that mean for the Dow? The Dow closed at 33,300. That's up 0.46% for the year. NASDAQ closed at 12,284. That's up 17.37% for the year. Uh, by far the best performing index we've got going on here are the major indices. MSCI EFA index closed at 2130. That's up 9.58% for the year. And the SP 500 closed at 4,124. That's 7.41% uh, up on the year. The Treasury, 10 year Treasury notes. Uh, closed at 3.47% or about just up a skosh year to date. It's down uh, 41 basis points or 0.41%. So uncertainty weighs on stocks. That's why we're stuck in this trading range. Uh, if you've been following the markets at all, they're, they're just kind of oscillating here at, uh, at a certain level in a certain range. They're just kind of stuck, not breaking down nor breaking up. And so uh, it's interesting to see the battle of the bulls and the bears play out here, but we're still in a bear market. So keep that in mind. Uh, resolution might be to the downside. The week got off to a quiet start as investors waited on April's two key inflation reports scheduled for release on Wednesday and Thursday when consumer prices rose less than forecasts. Uh, stocks broke out of their lethargy and moved higher. Stocks also got a boost on Wednesday afternoon from comments from the White House hinting that and an opening for negotiation on the debt ceiling. Yeah, we'll see how that plays out. Uh, despite a substantial cooling and producer price increases, stocks turned mixed on Thursday amid a disappointing earnings report from uh, Dow Industrial Component and new data that reignited investor anxiety over regional banks' financial health. Stocks ended the week the way they began, largely drifting in an otherwise direct, directionless fashion. So inflation pressures ease. Uh, consumer prices rose 4.9% year over year, the 10th consecutive month that the headline inflation rate has declined. This was a slight improvement over March's 12-month increase of 5%. April's monthly inflation rate was about 0.4% above March's 0.1% rise. So April's increase was driven by higher housing, gasoline, and used car costs. Inflation's progress extended into wholesale prices, which rose 0.2% in April, and which was below the consensus forecast of 0.3% rise. For the last 12 months, producer prices increased 2.3%, an improvement 
from last month's 2.7% year-over-year gain and the lowest recording since January 2021. So this week, key economic data that we're looking at, retail sales, industrial production, housing starts, existing home sales, index of economic uh, leading indicators and jobless claims. That's all going to take place Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday this week. So uh, this week, notable companies reporting earnings, the Home Depot, which actually I heard about today, they disappointed. They uh, had top line revenue decline uh, the most in a couple of decades, which is pretty fascinating. Uh, that really means the housing market is slowing down. And a lot of people have already done their remodels at home and stuff like that. And so that's starting to kind of subside. But it's so interesting, all this data. Who knows if it's financial engineering by Home Depot, kind of just getting things out of the way for what may be to come. But I do think the consumer's being impacted here. So Wednesday, we've got Cisco Systems, Target, uh, TJX companies. Thursday, Walmart, that's a big one. Applied Materials and uh, Ross Stores. Uh, Friday, Deer and Company. So tax tip how to understand your correct filing status. So taxpayers should understand their filing status well and at least be familiar with their other choices. When preparing and filing a tax return, the filing status affects, number one, if the taxpayer is required to file a federal tax return, number two, their standard deduction amount, number three, if they can claim certain credits, and number four, the amount of the tax they should pay. Here are the five filing statuses. So there's single, normally the status for taxpayers who are unmarried, divorced, or legally separated under a divorce or separate maintenance decreed governed by state law. Uh, uh, number two would be married filing jointly. If a taxpayer is married, they can file a joint tax return with their spouse. When a spouse passes away, the widowed spouse can usually file a joint return for that year. Uh, number three, married filing separate. So uh, married couples can choose to file separate tax returns when doing so uh, may uh, result in a more favorable tax treatment, but I've obviously talk to a CPA about that. For head of household, unmarried taxpayers may be able to use this status, but special rules apply. And number five, qualifying widow or widower with dependent child. This status may apply to a taxpayer if their spouse died during one of the previous two years and they have a dependent child and other conditions may apply. This information is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized tax advice. We suggest you discuss your specific tax issues with a qualified tax professional. And this tip was adapted from irs.gov. So stay tuned, you won't wanna miss it. Hey, this is Brent Foster, and we're gonna talk about chat GPT. You basically can't get away from it. Um, ChatGTP was launched on November 30th, 2022 by San Francisco-based OpenAI, uh, also the creator of DALL or Dolly 2 and Whisper AI. The service was in uh, initially free to the public and the company had plans to monetize the service later. By December 4th, 2022, ChatGTP had over 1 million users. In January, 2023, uh, ChatGPT reached over 100 million users, making it the fastest growing consumer application to date. Check that out. So in, a, in literally uh, a month or month and a half of launch, went from a million to 100 million users. The service works best in English, but is also able to function in some other languages to varying degrees of accuracy. No official peer-reviewed technical paper on chat. GTP was published. The company provides a tool called AI Classifier for indicating AI written text. 
that attempts to determine whether text has been written by an AI such as ChatGPT. OpenAI cautions that the tool will likely yield a lot of false positives and negatives, sometimes with great confidence. An example cited in the Atlantic Magazine showed that when given the first lines of the book of Genesis, the software concluded that it was uh, likely to be AI generated. So that wasn't exactly accurate. So it's a premium service. In February 2023, OpenAI began accepting registrations from the United States consumers for a premium service, uh, ChatGPT Plus, to cost $20 a month. The company promised that the updated but still experimental version of ChatGPT would provide access during peak periods, no downtime priority, access to new features and faster response speeds. So there's GPT-4. It was released in March. It's available uh, via an API and for premium chat GPT users. And they're talking about, you know, how much you can use it and all this other stuff. There's, there's a whole lot of information out there, but I just went to Wikipedia. This is some of the information uh, that they're talking about. So what is ChatGPT? It's an artificial intelligence, um, uh, AI uh, for short, chatbot developed by OpenAI and released in November of 2022. It is built on top of OpenAI's chat or uh, GPT 3.5 and GPT 4 foundational large language models or LLMs and has been fine tuned an approach to transfer learning using both supervised and uh, uh, reinforced learning techniques. So ChatGPT initially used a Microsoft Azure supercomputing infrastructure powered by NVIDIA's GPUs that Microsoft built specifically for OpenAI and that reportedly cost hundreds of millions of dollars following the success of ChatGPT. Microsoft dramatically upgraded the OpenAI infrastructure in 2023. So OpenAI, what they do is they, they collect data from chat GPT users to train and fine tune the service further. Users can upvote or downvote responses they receive from chat GPT and fill in a text field with additional feedback. So it's gonna be obviously continually learning and accelerating um, as time moves on. So some of the features of, of chat GPT um, and what they're doing through OpenAI. Although the core function of a chatbot is to mimic a human conversationalist, ChatGPT is versatile. It can write and debug computer programs, mimic the style of celebrity CEOs and write business pitches, compose music, teleplays, fairy tales and student essays, answer test questions, sometimes depending on the test, at, uh, at a level above the average human test taker, write poetry and song lyrics, translate and summarize text, emulate a Linux system, simulate entire chat rooms, play games like tic-tac-toe and simulate an ATM. Chat GPT's training data includes man pages, information about internet phenomena such as bulletin board systems and multiple programming languages. In comparison to its predecessor, Instruct GPT, ChatGPT, attempts to reduce harmful and deceitful responses. In one example, whereas Instruct GPT accepts the premise of the prompt, like, quote, tell me about when Christopher Columbus came to the U.S. in, in 2015, end quote, as being truthful, ChatGPT acknowledges 
the counterfactual nature of the question and frames it to answer as a hypothetical consideration of what might happen if Columbus came to the U.S. in 2015 using information about the voyages of Christopher Columbus and facts about the modern world, including modern perceptions of Columbus's actions. Unlike most chat box, ChatGPT remembers a limited number of previous prompts given to it in the same conversation. Journalists have speculated that this will allow ChatGTP to be used as a personalized therapist to prevent offensive outputs from being presented to and produced from ChatGPT. Queries are filtered through the OpenAI uh, modern endpoint, which is a, in quotations, an API, um, a separate GTP based a, uh, artificial intelligence and potentially racist or sexual prompts or sexist prompts are dismissed. In March, 2023, OpenAI announced that it would be adding support for plugins for chat GPT. This includes both plugins made by OpenAI, such as web browsing and code interpretation, as well as external plugins from developers such as Expedia, OpenTable, Zapier, Shopify, Slack, and Wolfram. So there you go. And there are limitations to it that they've acknowledged. And um, so sometimes OpenAI acknowledges is that ChatGPT sometimes writes plausible sounding but incorrect or nonsensical answers. This behavior is common to large language models and is called hallucination. <laughs> the, re re the reward model of ChatGPT designed around human oversight can be over-optimized and thus hinder performance in an example of an optimization pathology known as Goodhart's Law. ChatGPT has limited knowledge of events that occurred after September 2021. In training, ChatGPT human uh, reviewers preferred longer answers, irrespective of actual comprehension or factual content. Training data also suffers from algorithm bias, which may be revealed when ChatGPT responds to prompts, including descriptors of people. In one instance, ChatGPT generated a rap indicating that women and scientists of color were inferior to white and male scientists. So there you go. That, that's what's uh, a quick rundown of what Wikipedia actually says that OpenAI and ChatGPT is. I, I have a lot of information being hurled literally uh, my way in the wealth management business about all of this stuff. And uh, I think it's just going to continue on. And I think just listening to the news on Bloomberg, on CNBC and Fox and all these other places... I don't know. They just, I swear, they just keep talking about AI. AI. It's like they can't get enough of saying it uh, so that it just becomes a framework of, and, and a, a knitted into our the fabric of our culture. And it, I think it's only going to accelerate. So um, there you go. Uh, it's in a lot of the stocks we already own for, for Northbound Wealth Management clients, Google, Microsoft, Amazon, Apple. I mean, NVIDIA, you name it, it's uh, it's throughout the tech space. And I think uh, that's what's helped tech uh, perform so well year to date, by the way. So um, when I think, it, yes, it's going to be around, but I do think prices currently are going to are going to come down and and some of the air will come out of the balloon. 
um, a little, a little bit for lack of a better term. So stay tuned for that on to the next segment. Um, exciting stuff. It's time for the technical analysis spotlight. Here we go. So basically I want to talk about market breadth. Market breadth indicators analyze the number of stocks advancing relative to those that are declining in a given index or on a stock exchange, such as the New York Stock Exchange or the NASDAQ. Positive breadth occurs when more stocks are advancing than are declining. This suggests that the bulls, the people that believe the market's going up, are in control of the market's momentum and help confirm a price rise in the index. Conversely, a disproportional number of declining securities is used to confirm bearish momentum and a downside move in the stock market. Certain breadth indicators also incorporate volume, meaning like the volume that's being traded every day. They will not only look at whether a stock is advancing or declining in price, but also at the volume of those moves. This is because price moves on larger volume are considered to be more significant than price moves on lower volume. So market breadth looks at relative change of advancing to declining securities in a market. It is a technical analysis technique that gauges the strength or weakness of moves of a major index. When more stocks are advancing than declining, it, suge it suggests bullish market sentiment and confirms a broad market uptrend. Conversely, a large number of declining securities confirms bearish momentum and a downside move in the stock index. Certain breadth indicators also incorporate volume. So what the heck does all of this mean? <laughs> I'm glad you guys asked. So there's some bad breath, not that you need a Tic Tac or a Mint or something like that, but there's bad breath. That's the way that we uh, technicians, when we're looking at the market, we do use it as an indicator to measure kind of where things are going to go. So several recent messages have demonstrated poor stock market breadth. Unfortunately, that negative situation hasn't shown any improvement. One of the charts used to demonstrate that negative situation is repeated uh, in the S&P 500. If you pull up a chart of that, um, and you uh, and that's a market cap weighted index, and you overlay that with also the unweighted index or an equal weighted S&P 500 index, um, it shows that both lines are pretty much uh, trending in sync for the past year. But over the last three months, however, the red, so there's a red line on my chart here that I'm looking at. Uh, th that's the uh, equal weighted uh, index of the S&P. It's noticeably lagging behind uh, the cap weighted index. As a result, um, what that means is, is the it, the last rebound in the S&P 500 uh, hasn't been confirmed by the smaller stocks. So the the there's 500 companies in the S&P and they're they're all rel they're all big, but there's uh, a larger percentage of weighting to the majority of those companies. There's a larger weighting to uh, just a few of those companies. So um, hopefully I just said that right. That's normally a warning that the S&P or the index of the S&P 500 is on weaker technical footing. And that's happening while the S&P 500 is up against a ceiling. And it's a strong ceiling, and that would be the February high. 
And so uh, it's interesting to look at the cap weighted index relative to the equal weighted index and see how there's dispersion now uh, when they were trading in line with one another recently. So um, there's only four sectors too when we look at what's performing, uh, gaining ground during the last three months. Number one, communication services, technology, consumer staples, and utilities. The first two have contributed uh, the most to the market's spring rally, which has helped make the NASDAQ the market's strongest index, which I said earlier. While the second two show investors still favoring some sort of defensive allocation. The other seven S&P sectors, S&P 500 sectors, have lost ground. Um, so our, our main interest today is with the three of the weakest sectors that include financials, mainly banks, energy, and materials, mainly industrial metals. Interesting that last year energy was the top performer for the year. So uh, giving some of those gains back uh, uh, year to date this year. So financials, energy, and materials weigh on the market. Um, so the S&P 500 up against resistance uh, of the February high uh, with the moving average lines in positive alignment, which is typically good, but the lower, uh, the, the three weakest sectors falling closer to their March low, financials are being led lower by banks, which have been under a lot of pressure uh, weakness in energy and materials following the commodity price declines lower, uh, which could be a sign of a weakening economy. Uh, and that's especially true if you're taking a look at copper, which we do look at copper prices, but copper is, is tanking. It's fun. It's really breaking some technical levels there. And, uh, again, regional banks have been the weakest part of the market this year. Um, and it I think that that sector basically represents one of the biggest threats to the overall market. Um, and if you're, you know, if you're like us, we're looking at most of the large banks and have been in most of the large banks, not the regionals, not even in the index of the regionals, just kind of steering clear of that space. So uh, where you're safe is like the JP Morgan's Wells Fargo Bank of America's, the Charles Schwab's of the world. Uh, those guys are all uh, solid. Um, and um, the places to have an allocation to the banks uh, for now um, until uh, there's further indication of a bottoming process there in the regional banking um, space. So the, the regional banking spider that tracks it, uh, tracks that space, uh, went to the lowest level. That's the ticker symbol on that one is KRE, uh, but it went to the lowest level since. 2020, so the pandemic, um, and it's ending. It ended like last week with more selling, and this week even more selling. So um, it's hard to imagine the rest of the market gaining a whole lot of ground while bank stocks remained under pressure. So um, the main message of all the charts that I'm looking at is that the broader market isn't as strong as uh, the major indexes uh, might suggest. So. We might want to take a look at those breath indicators uh, and, and continue to monitor those uh, to see where we're at with the advanced decline lines. I've talked about it before on this podcast, how we look at the, uh, the uh, McKellen summation index and look at the New York Stock Exchange and 
see where uh, things are at. And right now we're at a low level. We're in the, the second uh, week of declines and weakness in my indicator three and indicator four as well. So we, we ha probably have several more weeks of weakness and who knows if the equity markets are going to hold up or resolve to the downside and a catalyst for either direction, in my humble opinion, would be the debt ceiling. That's a political football at the moment. So depending on which way that breaks could tell us which direction the market's going to break. Um, so we'll see. We'll continue to monitor that situation. But for now, uh, stay, uh, stay in tune with what's going on in the market. Stay tuned to the podcast. Please subscribe, like. Uh, we post the, the, the Northbound Wealth podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you listen. Also, we, uh, we, I do upload them to YouTube for your viewing pleasure and push them out through social media. So please follow, like, share uh, this podcast if you like it. And I'll just keep uh, plugging away at this week by week by week. We're in the 41st episode of the Northbound Wealth Podcast and we're going to just keep doing this. So uh, I hope you guys enjoy it. I hope it's educational and fun. We'll talk to you soon.